Open your Bible to James chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you or turn in your phone Bible app, if you want to follow along, we're working our way through the book of James this year. We started the 1st of January. Uh, Our series is called Faith That Isn't Dead. And of course, the implications of the book of James is that our faith should be alive and active and growing. And uh, this week, um, this is, uh, we'll finish up chapter 3. And chapter 3 of the book of James has been all about leadership in the church. And there's some challenges there. And just to bring us all into this message, it applies to all of us. Because if you've listened to me at all, you know that I see all of us who are following Jesus in a leadership role. Because there are people that are watching you. And when you follow Jesus, you put yourself into a different category in this world. Because you live differently. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're moving towards being obedient to Jesus and being changed into his likeness. And so that puts you in a position where you're going to influence people. They're going to watch you, um, whether you like it or not. And so we want to be people that are recognizing that, working uh, to surrender to Jesus and to grow in these areas in our lives that, that he's trying to help us with. So this week, the big idea of the message is faith that isn't dead has pure motives. James started off chapter three last week by addressing the kind of a caution, cautionary note saying, not many of you should want to be leaders in the church. Not many of you should want to be teachers because the bar is higher. And then he began to point out the fact that um, at the very least, all of us struggle with the use of our tongues and controlling our tongues. And uh, this causes a problem, especially when we want to be leaders, because as leaders, we're responsible for how we treat people. God cares an awful lot about that. Um, It's more important than what you know. Um, To be a leader in the church, certainly you need to know the Bible. You should have Bible knowledge, and you should be uh, aware of things and be able to help people and teach. But there's a more important factor, and that is that you have a heart that loves people and cares about people and that you, you have some character traits that reflect the character of Jesus. And so he warned last week about that and pointed out the struggle that we all have controlling our tongues. This week, he presses into this issue of motives. Leadership's important. I wonder who the greatest leader that you've ever seen or been around or who your favorite leader is. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a boss or employer. Maybe it was a mentor. Maybe it was somebody in the public arena. Maybe it's somebody from church history or maybe it was a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Who's your favorite leader? When you think about them, I wonder why. What made them your favorite leader? Leaders are important. They set a tone for us. They influence us in directions. A lot of times the people that we're around when we're young, that we look to and emulate, they begin or become the people that we follow. And so much of our life gets influenced by those people that we look up to. You know, James in this passage is pressing in on leadership in the church. And he really, I think, is pressing into the culture that we need to have in the church. The world outside the church represents a culture influenced by um, worldly ideals, by satanic influences, by ideas that come from the enemy, okay? It is an opposition most of the time to what Jesus wants us to do and who he wants us to be. And so inside the church, 
We really have a struggle that we don't bring the influences in that we're around all the time and that certainly affect us, that we don't bring those into the church, that actually in the church, we are more influenced by what happens here and by Jesus' culture so that when we go out into the world around, we're actually influencing the world we live in in that direction. Maybe you'd agree that that is a struggle and a challenge, and yet it is the calling that we have, the calling that Jesus puts on our lives. And so we want to, in the church, at the very minimum, church needs to be a place where the motives and where our character is challenged and encouraged and where we're drawn into becoming different people than we are influenced to be in the world we live in. And so there's a culture that occurs when people get together, when people interact together. It's a culture. And so James is going to be speaking to this culture that needs to be created. Again, it's a culture that needs leaders who are exemplifying the character traits that come from God. And so James emphasizes these character traits. And he begins by pointing out one of the characteristics and one of the factors that people who know God and really believe in him and are following him will exemplify. What he starts off by saying is that a church that's got a living faith is going to value wisdom. Value wisdom. Follow along as I read verse 13, James chapter 3, and we begin in our passage this morning. If you are wise and understand God's ways, um, it's not a question, it's really a challenge. He's kind of saying it like this. If you think, if you say that you know God, right, you're wise and you understand God's ways, then he says, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. If you think you know something, think you know God, you think you understand spiritual things, you think you have an awareness, you've got an ability to help others, then prove it by how you live. Live an honorable life. Um, The Jewish culture valued wisdom. They really valued wisdom above knowledge. They understood the importance of knowledge. The Jewish people were really tasked with the responsibility of carrying the knowledge of God down through human history. It was given to them, the revelation of God. They were the people that knew who God was. They um, came from Adam and they understood the history of the human race. And so they were responsible with the very truth of God. And so knowledge is very important. They had it and they knew how important it was, but they also understood that knowledge in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. It needs to be handled well. And that's what wisdom really is the correct application of knowledge in order to be successful and to make it in life and to really live for God. We need to be around people that have the wisdom to help us know how does this live out in our lives? What does it look like to live for Jesus? Jewish culture understood the limitations of knowledge itself. In 1 Corinthians 8, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he notes that knowledge, he says, puffs up. Knowledge puffs us up, makes us feel more important. It fuels our pride. You know, I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. Knowledge puffs up, but he said love builds up. So, of course, in 1 Corinthians, we have chapter 13, the love chapter, which is all about love and the importance of love. 
And he points out that you can be amazing, you can know everything, you can be a spiritual giant, you can have faith to move mountains, but if you don't have love, you got nothing. All of that is useless. And so again, the motivations, the character that we live with becomes so important to us. We must be implementing what we know into our lives. This is what wisdom does for us. Uh, Gene Brader, one of our elders, just heard him say this yesterday. If we're not applying God's word into our lives, then what good is it really? What good is it if we know it, but we're not doing something with it? And this is the challenge of James. In fact, knowledge without wisdom can become a destructive force. And so the importance of wisdom we see in scripture, and again, we see in the nation of Israel, one of the most famous examples of wisdom and the importance of it, we find in the third king of Israel called Solomon. The first king of Israel was Saul, and Saul was a natural-born leader. He had natural leadership character traits. He was tall, he was good-looking, he was aggressive, he was a warrior, he, he said he could rally people and get things done. The problem is Saul did not honor God, he didn't obey God. And for that reason, God took the mantle of leadership from him. And though his son, Jonathan, was an amazing guy, as most people named Jonathan are, (laughs) right? He was an amazing guy. But no, but Jonathan, it was a great guy, could have been a great king. And yet because of Saul's disobedience, God said no. Um, And so he appointed David, the second king of Israel. And David was a man with a heart, right? He was a man after God's own heart. And so even though he committed adultery and murder, um, horrendous sin, when confronted with it, he repented, he, he broke before God. And so God said, your heart will allow your lineage to stay in power. And so Solomon, David's son, comes to power. And when he does in Second Chronicles, we have an account of an amazing encounter, an opportunity that Solomon had. Second Chronicles chapter one, verse seven, that night, after Solomon becomes king, right? That night, God appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. (laughs) Here's God, the God of the universe, appearing to Solomon, a new king. What do you need, Solomon? What do you want? I'll give you anything. Solomon replied to God, you showed great faith, uh, you you showed... um, great faithful love to my father, uh, to David, my father, and now you have made me king in his place. Oh, Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly. For you, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? Solomon given an opportunity before God to ask for anything. He asked for wisdom and knowledge. And so God's reply to him in verse 11 and 12, God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies or long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people. I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested, but I will also give you wealth and riches and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. Certainly Solomon 
the greatest king that Israel ever had in terms of the size of the kingdom, the wealth, the prosperity. It was a time of peace under his rule. And we have examples of his wisdom in the scriptures, ways in which he was able to help the people and create and foster an environment that was good for them. He wasn't perfect. He made some critical mistakes as well and errors, but he was he had wisdom and God gave him that ability. People in our world were enamored with knowledge. Knowledge gives us power. In fact, there's that saying, knowledge is power. I remember hearing it when I was a kid, maybe you did too. <clears throat> and it's true. I mean, knowledge gives technology, advancement, military prowess. Like it helps us move forward, advances our culture, gives us prosperity. We know where the opportunities are. We know where the information is. It's important. You gotta have knowledge to make it. Knowledge is power. We also have a saying, and that is that power corrupts. <laughs> and so knowledge in and of itself is not necessarily lead to goodness and to virtue. In fact, it can create all kinds of problems. And so in the church, <clears throat> we can't have a culture that just exemplifies knowledge and power. We've got to have a culture that exemplifies wisdom. James says there's two character traits that are going to be a demonstration of real spiritual insight and wisdom, and that is, again, to live an honorable life. Good conduct, good work, a life that can be exemplified, that others can look at and say, that's how I should live. That's how I want to live. I want to be like them. The measure of your faith, again, as we talk about here, isn't in how much you know. It's in what you're applying into your life. You can know just a little bit of the Bible, but if you're applying it... <laughs> You might be more mature than someone who knows the whole thing but isn't living it out. Good works done in humility. The second aspect. Good works can be done for self-promotion. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. People can be motivated to do good things, right? But humility can be lacking. Humility creates a culture and it comes from a culture of people that understand where they, um, where they stand before living God. Humility says, um, it's not all about me, and I'm not uh, the center of the universe, right? But I understand that I come to God at the same place everyone else does, and that I am a sinner saved by grace, and that I need other people. And it's not seeking recognition, but it's seeking opportunities to serve. And so humility becomes such an important factor and um, characteristic James presses in on the fact, and again, he's teaching us regarding the character of Jesus. Jesus, God's son, came to earth, took on a human body, and humbled himself to serve us. This is the example of God. There is no greater power than God, and yet God humbled himself. His example, we see in Philippians chapter 2. Again, the Apostle Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Again, Jesus, and he goes on to talk about how Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He didn't consider the position he had in heaven to be grasped and he gave it up. He humbled himself. He came to be a servant. This is our example. 
Our church needs to reflect that. Our church culture needs to exemplify these traits. Good, honest, pure, exemplary lifestyle. Emphasizing and demonstrating humility. Andrew Murray has this little paragraph on humility that's challenging to me. I'll probably use it as an illustration every time humility comes up because I'm still trying to um, grasp and understand all that he's saying. But I know it, it um, I think it's very good. It says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross, manifested in those of his own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. There's a lot there. (laughs) What does humility look like if it's played out in my life? How many times do I, when something bad happens, when somebody does something that's hurtful, why? Why? How much time do we spend asking why, you know? Humility says, why not? Like, what's special about me? Why why does it matter? Why wouldn't somebody do something? Why wouldn't I encounter what everyone else has encountered in life? Humility keeps our hearts and minds in a good place, and we're able to deal with those blows that come and do it with grace and do it with peace. Humility matters. It's so valuable to us. The world says I should gain a position of power so I can make things the way I want them to be. It's about control. It's about how do I get my preference? Well, I want things to look this way. So if I get into a position, then I can influence that. But leadership in the church done out of humility and done with a a servant attitude really asks the question, what would be best for the people, for God's people, for God's church? What does Jesus want done? What is the Holy Spirit doing in the church and how can I fuel that and respond to it? See, it has a different perspective. It isn't selfish and self-focused. It's other-centered. It's serving God's people, just like Solomon. God, these are your people. I need the wisdom and the knowledge to govern them, to manage their lives and to make things better because this truly is yours. In the church, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the leader. And so as human leaders, we seek to honor him and look out for what he desires. That's the difference between leadership cultures. Next, uh, James moves into some warnings. See, there's motivations that we live by. And motivations are really everything. What our motives are turn into what we do and how we do it. And so he warns against some negative bad motivations. And so we're going to see that though we live in a humanistic world influenced by the enemy, that we're to identify those Bad motives, those motives that aren't coming from God. And he helps us with that by pointing out some of those issues. And so the next point that we see here in our message is that living faith, and a church filled with people full of living faith, rejects demonic motives. Let's read the next couple of verses, 14 through 16. 
But if you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. It's like when you get, somebody gets accused of something, right? It's, it's a, we can have a tendency to get defensive. Well, that's not who I am. That's not what I would do, right? We, get, we want to boast and then lie about it. This is a tendency. He's like, don't do that. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Jealousy and selfishness, right? They're not coming from God. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So what are these demonic motives? Well, I think we see in the scriptures, and I think it was last year we went through some of the book of Judges. We looked at the Canaanite peoples that the nation of Israel encountered and uh, were to take over and to push out of the land of Canaan that God gave them. And so as they entered that land and they encountered those people, in the book of Judges we see their worship and the gods they worshiped. We can see the demonic influence right, that those gods represented what they asked from the people, always blood, right, always, um, always um, exacted from them and harmed them, sexual deviancy and um, was always a part of it. And so it's like these things are coming from the enemy. Well, in our world, these motivations that James is talking about, he says they have their root and grounding in um, from Satan, from the enemy. If you don't believe in Satan, then you're going to be fooled. You're not going to see these things as they really are. But there is a devil, and he is seeking to and has sought to influence the human race. So we see these motives come out. We really see them in the temptation when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, right? Selfish ambition. Look, you're missing something. God's withholding. You should do this. You should get this. And so we know that they come from him. So God teaches us to be like him, and the devil is trying to get us to move to be like and to do what we want to do. And so selfish motives all come from him. So how do we tell which is which? Well, bitter jealousy, he mentions first. I think you could ask this question. Are you envious of other success? Do you get frustrated when others get attention or recognition and you do not? That word bitter has the idea of pain. It hurts when someone else gets something and you don't. This is bitter jealousy. Jealousy means desirous of what someone else has. Um, there's a story told of a couple shopkeepers, right? And they're across the street from each other. They have the same kind of business and they are bitter rivals. Uh, they're constantly competing with each other. They look, one looks across the street, sees the other with a customer, right? Sees, you know, getting some wins and he's, I gotta get, you know. And so it motivates them both, but they're trying to put the other one out of business and they're just frustrated and angry when the other one gets success, right? Well, one night an angel appears to one of them and he says, listen, um, you can ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. But there's one little caveat, and that is that whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you, but your rival will get twice as much. If you ask for money, I'll give you money, but your rival's gonna get twice as much. If you ask for health, I'll give you health, but your rival's gonna be healthier. You ask for a long life, you get it. So the guy's pretty frustrated. He's like, man, here's an opportunity, but I want him to get twice as much as me. So he thinks... Thinks and finally says, strike me blind in one eye. (laughs) Bitter jealousy, right? (laughs) Listen, (laughs) it's not good. 
And yet at, at times we've all been there. I have, you probably have. I mean, this, this becomes, it creeps in. And it can, if we're not careful, become what we're motivated by. It's good uh, to have ambition, to desire to move forward. There's good things, but we've gotta be careful, right? About where our heart's at and what is it really that we're being motivated out of. The second thing James points out is selfish ambition. Are you looking to gain a position of success for yourself, to promote yourself, to make yourself look better? Is your motive primarily selfish? And he warns against it. In fact, he says where there's selfish ambition, every kind of evil. And so when we see conflict and discord and we see all kinds of issues and problems, a lot of times these motivations are the source. Not always, but a lot of times. They create the opposite of peace and unity. They create discord and, and unrest and, and the feeling that things aren't right and, and no one's ever getting enough and they're not getting what I deserve and all those things. And listen, we all struggle with that. We, we have sinful hearts. We've been influenced by the fall and so we struggle with our motives. But James is pointing out here, be careful. These are danger signs. They're really coming from the devil. They're dangerous you should want nothing to do from them. You should resist them and push them out of your life and make sure they're not a part of your church culture. Because again, the church has got to be different than the world. So what are leadership traits and what does leadership look like when these are the motivations? Well, I think some of the factors, some of the kind of the way this manifests is really controlling leadership. Really controlling. Why is that? Well, because everything reflects on me. <laughs> What everybody does, it makes me look good or bad. And so I've got to make sure everyone's doing exactly what undermining leadership. Like no one else can get where I'm at. I've got to keep everyone else a step down. And so I'll undermine people to keep them from getting past me or ahead of me. You can have a real gossipy, negative, backbiting, political environment. I think that comes from these motives. Self-promotion. Um, I... You guys, I've shared my story in here, so, but, but I really found my place. I got to a place in life where I found myself really consumed by these motivations. And uh, I was serving God and doing what I would say God's work, ministry, working in the church, trying to help people grow and, and help people come to Christ. But I found myself in a place where I was crushed by that ministry and by that work. And I would venture to say, if you're going to do God's work and you have the wrong motives, you will not succeed. You will not be able to do it. Because God's work requires the right motivations to be able to stay in it, sustain it. And so I really found myself, and over time, you know, little things, little, little things. And I remember some of them. Had a little check in my spirit, maybe a little conscience. Well, that's not right, but, well, that's what you got to do, right? That's what you got to do to make it. One of those times was when Facebook and Twitter came on the scene. I'm old enough to remember that. I was in seminary and I remember sitting in class and some guy that was a church planter, something that I was hoping to become, he said, oh, Facebook, Twitter, I got to get on this. So I was like, first, like, that sounds stupid. And then I started looking at it and boy, it sucked me right in. I started learning how to grow my followers, right? It was pretty easy. I figured out how to do it. I could get thousands of, hey, all these people are watching what I have to say. And then I Promote yourself, right? Selfies, self-promotion. Look at me. I'm pretty good at this. Here's my stuff. And listen, it doesn't have to be done out of the wrong motives, but it sure pulls you in that direction. And if you have any of the wrong motives, it's not going to discourage them. It's going to encourage them. And that's what happened to me. And so I remember thinking, man, this isn't probably right. 
I mean, I remember my mom telling me, you know, the Bible says, let another man praise you and not your own lips, you know. But here I am praising myself and promoting myself. Ah, just what you gotta do if you're gonna make it, if you wanna start a ministry, if you wanna get, right? And then gotta be careful. And it brought me to a place of uh, just being crushed, burning out, not being able to continue. And it took a year of driving around Colorado selling light bulbs for God to reveal to me the corruption of my heart and where I'd gone wrong. And to be able to begin to repent of that and try to turn from it. Listen, it can be destructive. This stuff will eat your lunch. These warnings, these issues, these motivations are not small things to be concerned about. They're like poison. And so we want to resist them. We want to be aware of them. Um, we have a tendency and selfish ambition can show up in our churches and our Christianity in partisanship, right? We begin to feel like our group, our church, our camp is better than others. And we want to grow it. We want to fight the competition. Um, James Adamson, I found this quote this week in a commentary, says, both in politics and religion, zeal can degenerate into mere partisanship. And we see that, right? And denominations, a lot of the world looks at denominations and goes, what are you guys doing? What is this? Aren't you supposed to be the same? Don't you follow the same Lord? And, you know, <clears throat> that division, partisanship, my church, my group, my theological camp, my, right? And we, we can get to where we're loyal to the wrong things. We focus on the wrong things. We put our zeal in the wrong place. And I think this is a sign, again, can be a result of these bad motivations, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, challenging the church in Corinth, he said, he goes, I hear this coming out of your church. Some of you say you follow Apollos. Some of you say I follow Paul. He goes, don't we all follow Christ? What are you doing? Right? You're, you're getting partisan. You're creating division because you're falling into camps behind different leaders. And he's one of them. And he says it's wrong. He denounces it. Bad behavior, bad motivations are coming out here. You're not following the truth. You're not living with wisdom. Maturity brings us a place to recognize we want Jesus' work to succeed, right? I want every good church in this region to grow, to reach more people, to see people come to Christ. That's what we need to move to when we walk in humility and we allow God. And listen, I'm not claiming to, I'm there every day. Um, but that's what it looks like, right? And so we want to make sure that we're moving in that direction. We're putting our zeal and passion behind Jesus' work, and we have the wisdom to see that he can do his work through a lot of different people, different churches, different ways. Well, Jesus' culture, fortunately, James moves on to some good motivations, gives us a picture of what it should look like. And so Jesus' culture in a church has living faith, and that living faith embraces godly motives. Let's read the last couple of verses in our passage, 17 and 18. He says this, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy, full of mercy, uh, and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. When we value wisdom, we gain godly motives. When we value what God has to say and we listen to it and we apply it into our lives, we gain wisdom. And this gives us 
it changes our hearts and it changes our motivations. And so he says, first of all, pure, the wisdom that comes from God, motivations comes from, that come from God are pure. That means self is not in there. Right? It's pure motives that come from God concerned about others. Peace-loving, working to maintain peace, not to bring about discord, strife, conflict. Gentle at all times. I love the all times. He's <laughs> like gentle at all times. You can kind of put on a front, be gentle in certain situations, but he's like, this needs to be a character trait. You need to be a gentle person, not angry or harsh in your attitude. Willing to yield to others. It's not my way or the highway. I'm willing to listen. Hey, what do you think we should do? Let's try it your way. Mercy. It says full of mercy. You actually enjoy letting someone off the hook or something they've done to you. It brings you pleasure. <laughs> like, man, I love doing that. Do you go throughout your day looking for opportunities to let somebody that's done you wrong off the hook <laughs> Say, listen, I'm going to show you. No, no. God's shown so much mercy to me. Listen, man, how could I hold something against you? No, no, no. You're, it's okay. I mean, listen, I don't get up every day and walk through life that way. I don't know about you, but that's what it means to be full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. I think about this in terms of the people around me that are in my orb, my sphere of influence. I'm bumping shoulders with them, interacting with them. Those people, the fruit of good deeds is that those people are doing better. They're encouraged by my presence, my involvement in their life. Think about it in our homes, our families, right? The parents, how are they doing? How's dad doing? How's mom doing? How are mom and dad doing? Creates an environment for the children. How are we all doing? Well, guess what? If we have the fruit of good deeds, then our culture and our environment, our home is going to be healthy, good, encouraging, uplifting, right? How about in our businesses, in our classrooms, in our churches, fruit of good deeds. When I'm walking with Jesus, when my faith is alive, right, then I am producing good fruit in the people's lives around me. Shows no favoritism, right? Everybody knows I care about them. Everybody knows I treat them the same. Always sincere. No phony smiles, no phony concern, but real, real connected, real care for others. Lastly, a church is filled with peacemakers. Peacemakers plant seeds of peace. What are some of those seeds? Well, some of them follow these traits that we've been talking about, treating everyone the same. If I show favoritism, am I creating an environment of peace? No, I'm creating a, an environment where there's jealousy, where some people feel better than, oh, there's an inside group, there's an inside, right? Oh, I can't be a part of that. It doesn't create peace. Let others have their way, yielding to others. That establishes an environment and a culture of peace. Using, sorry, using sarcasm sparingly, right? I know sometimes um, it just comes out. I just enjoy sarcasm, right? Sometimes it lands the wrong way. Um, it's taken the wrong way. Got to be careful with it. Being sincere in our interactions if I'm sincere with you and then behind your back over here, I say something different, it gets back to you. That, that's not peacemaking. That's going to create conflict. Helping others overcome their issues and problems. Peacemakers will step into the gap. They'll step into the line of fire, into a conflict, and they'll try to mediate and bring about peace. 
It's a, it's a skill. It's a trait. It takes a great deal of character. People have to build respect and trust you. And that means you've lived in a way that they know they can because they've seen that in your life. A church full of peacemakers who are planting those seeds has a harvest of righteousness. It has people who are moving away from sin. They're moving into a good environment that's healthy, right? That's inviting, that's winsome. I want to move in that direction because it's good. You know, our church has really moved into a season of really trying to have a leadership culture and to see leaders emerge from our church into positions of leadership. And that's happening and it's been happening and it's really encouraging to see. And of course, when that happens, in order to have this kind of culture, we need to make sure and the challenge for all of us in leadership is to exemplify these things, to live out what James is talking about here, to avoid the pitfalls that are always there and the temptations that pull us away from Jesus' culture and to live out an honorable life with the fruit of good works that demonstrate goodness and creates a culture that's safe and encouraging and inviting and attractive. But I know that we, each one of us, represent different arenas. We have homes and neighborhoods. We work in businesses, right, in places in our community. Some of us are leaders. And these motivations and character traits can really and are meant by God to influence the world around us as well. And so let's grow in the motivations that come from Jesus. Let's grow to fight for, (laughs) protect, foster a culture in our church that has godly wisdom, that understands right and wrong and where the danger motivations are and resists those and elevates and emulates and encourages each other to live out of that relationship with God, those motives that inspire us to goodness. There's some things that, you know, our mission statement in this church that we've introduced this fall is to, that we're a church on mission to raise up disciple makers. Disciple makers are people that are making disciples. They're reproducing themselves. Um, Raise up disciple makers who share the gospel where we live, work, and play. In order to do that, we're really talking about people, a people who are ministering to the world around us. And there's some things that we've got to grow in. There's some Um, There's some character traits and there's some skills and there's some maturing that we need to do if we're going to be able to do that. And I think there's three key areas. And one is that we've got to be growing our love for God, which will also translate into a love for people. I promise you that if you try to invest in the people around you and you move past just a surface transactional kind of relationship, that it's going to be difficult. And without godly character and without growing in love for people and love for God, you'll burn out pretty quickly. You'll get frustrated pretty quickly and you'll say, I'm not dealing with those crazy people. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. They're so irritating. They're so, right? Because the ministry that God calls us to, the investment in others, requires a love. It requires that we care. And so we grow in that. That helps us to be willing to reach out. We have our vision meeting at four o'clock today. You want to come back for that? It's going to be really encouraging talking about the last year and things that have happened. And one of the things I was just sharing with somebody out in the lobby before church, the people that have come to Christ in the last year that have come to faith, for the majority of them have come to Christ. They've trusted Christ because someone in our church was in a relationship with them and discipled them and shared the gospel with them. And they've stayed connected and they're growing. And this is what we want to see happen in our church. It's what Jesus really initiated when he started the church. And so we want to grow to be disciple makers, but we've got to learn that. We've got to grow in our love for God. That'll help us grow in our love for people. And then we've got to, 
have a lifestyle that allows and accommodates people to interrupt our life. We've got to be willing to be flexible and sensitive and open to God. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to you at times and say, hey, you should ask. There's an opportunity here. Go ask this person how they're doing. You're going to see things and you're going to need to respond. And you've got to be flexible enough and willing to say, hey, okay, God, I'll listen to you. I'll allow an interruption in my schedule. I'll take the time to respond. And then last, our view of money and resources. It's got to change. We have a tendency to want to acquire and build our own kingdoms. And the problem is that ministering to people will never pay off. (laughs) It'll never pay off. If you're looking for that kind of a payoff, it just isn't going to work. It's not going to happen. The payoff is much different, right? The benefit, what God does in your life is very different. It's not around resources. And so one of the one of the resources we want to give to you out on the table in the lobby, we got these are free. Just grab one. It's called the treasure principle. It helps us grow to be generous people and to see our lives as an opportunity to invest and not just acquire. Mature church is a church that's moved beyond um, kind of a um, what am I getting out of this mentality to what am I investing? How am I um, contributing? That's maturity. That's a difference. And so we want to keep growing in that direction. I was challenged as a young man by a pastor to respond to God, what he's done for me, with this heart and this attitude to say, God, I'll go anywhere at any time, right, at any cost. I will respond to you. James calls himself a bondservant of Jesus, a willing servant. (laughs) He's serving Jesus because of what Jesus has done for him. This is the heart we want to have. This is the church we want to be. It's a culture we need to foster. God, thank you for the way that you um, love us and you encourage us and you challenge us, the way you correct us. Your word is challenging. This book of James is really challenging. It's really convicting, especially this last couple weeks for me as a leader. It's like, man, this bar is high and how often do I fall short of that? And yet you want us to step into that, to respond to you with repentance and with a heart of humility and you want to change us. So I just pray to help us, God. We, we struggle with these motivations. We struggle with the world around us. It influences us, pulls us away from you. So help us to continue to foster a culture in our church that represents you, that looks like you, that listens to you. God, change us. Help us to be willing to say yes to you each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.